Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Believe in Softball. I'm your host, Jenna Becerra, and we have a packed episode today. And I want to just get right into it and go through today's order. So first, as usual, we'll cover our bases. I'll give a few updates about NCAA and youth softball. Then we'll head into our interview, which actually four ladies are joining today that are ambassadors of the game and members of the Black softball community sharing their thoughts and perspectives. And then we'll wrap things up also as usual with the double play tip of the week. So jumping in, covering our bases, COVID-19 continues to wreak havoc on 2020. Wright State cut softball due to budget, and it's the first D1 program to be cut due to the pandemic. They actually also cut men's and women's tennis, and they're now in danger of not being NCAA compliant in terms of the overall number of teams that they're fielding as an athletics department. But they did say that they'll honor all the scholarships of the students that are affected and want to keep attending the school. But this sucks. I mean, we talk about how softball is on the rise in both visibility and revenue generation as a sport. And I don't know the intricacies of their athletics budget, but you'd think that we're at a point where we'd want to invest in softball. But unfortunately, this means that even more athletes will probably be looking to transfer. And in tracking transfers, there are now over 350 D1 softball players looking to transfer. And right now, keep in mind, there are 297 D1 softball teams, according to Softball America. And it's happening everywhere, including at the top. Arizona is an example. With the stacked senior class coming back and a huge freshman class coming in, five Wildcats have entered the transfer portal. So seemingly there's no bad blood, but it's just the nature of the circumstance. These girls have been battling for a spot and they want a chance to play. It's no one's fault as to why that became harder, but it's not surprising that they want to increase their chances. You love the game, you want to play. That's what the goal is when you're originally recruited, outside of getting your education, of course, since you were a young girl. And young girls are getting to play again. Youth softball is coming back. There are some tournaments up and running with live streams for virtual recruiting. I did see a sassy tweet from Kentucky's head coach Lawson about evaluating talent in a COVID world. She said, I'm very thankful for technology and I'm happy to watch softball, but I'm seriously considering a strategy where I recruit the first players where one, the live stream feed works and two, I can see their uniform numbers. So it's clearly tough and it's uncharted waters. Everyone's doing what they can. But I am interested to see how the tech works. Will players who have more access to tech or more tech savvy teams, coaches, parents, et cetera, have an advantage? Uh, And overall, just how this adjustment to recruiting is going to pan out. But I think we can all agree that pandemics suck. But something that we can do to take a breather amid all of this is to have some fun betting with our partner betonline.ag. A lot of the big pro leagues aren't up and running yet, but there are a ton of games and events to bet on. So check it out and go to betonline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100 to get your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. And one more thing actually, Check out BetOnline's special, The Final Dance, while you're at it. Again, there are roundtable interviews from former Chicago Bulls, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harper as they discuss the Michael Jordan doc. Pretty cool. And now, speaking of roundtable interviews, let's get into ours today. When we started the show earlier this year, we wanted to cover the blood, the sweat, the tears, and all parts of softball and our community. And today, for the first time, we have a panel and a roundtable of guests. And we are spotlighting members of the Black softball community with the goal to ask questions, but most importantly, to listen. 
So welcome back, Natasha Watley, to the show, and welcome for the first time, Tori Tyson, Raven Siobhan, and Kelsey Stewart. Thank you again, ladies, for joining, for being open, and for using your voices. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So first, I think it would be awesome if we could just kind of go around, each of you answer, say who you are, where you're from, where you went to college, and what you do now. Um, I'm Kelsey Stewart. Um, I'm from Wichita, Kansas. I went to the University of Florida. Um, currently, I am training for the Olympics and playing pro with Scrapyard Dogs. Amazing. Tori? Um, I'm Tori Tyson. Currently, I'm the head softball coach at Howard University, um, and I played at the University of Nebraska. Nice. Raven? My name's Raven Chavon. I'm from Thousand Oaks, California. I went to the University of Tennessee, and I am a fifth grade reading teacher. I love it. Shout out to the 8052. I always have to do it. <laughs> and Natasha. My name is Natasha Watley. I am a two-time Olympian. I'm from Irvine, California. I went to UCLA. I currently um, coach in Japan, uh, lead a nonprofit, and just try to help out the softball community the best I can. Thank you again, ladies. Let's just dive right in. I'll pose this question to you all, and we can go around and answer again. What have the recent weeks been like as you're reflecting on the Black Lives Matter movement, the tragic loss of George Floyd and many others? Just how has it been? Oh, I know for me, um, and I don't know if anyone else on the call feels this way, I've always kind of like stayed mum and on a lot of race issues. Like I'll talk to people of like, like race, like I have my like Black group of friends or minority group of friends that I bounce things off of, but I've never felt comfortable um speaking out and in many ways like everything that's going on I felt more empowered than ever in my entire career playing or coaching um and have felt kind of like my duty um to speak out on these things so uh, it's, it's devastating and stressful and um and having very tough conversations as all of this has been um in many ways I feel like it's been necessary and and it's forced me to grow and take on a role that I've always like thought I wanted to do but kind of like pushed me into it I um I agree with Tori. I have been really quiet on a lot of issues that I probably should have spoke out on, but I think who we are in society, like we have coaches, Olympians, teachers, like, and we're black. So on top of that, like, we have to watch what we say, I guess you could say. But with her, like, I've never been so empowered to speak up and speak out. And it's something I feel like I have to do. And at this point, it's like, if you can't support me off the field, then don't support me on the field. And if I lose followers for it, so what, but I can't be quiet about it anymore. Yeah, I'll piggyback Kelsey. I guess like one of the main reasons why I wanted it to be a panel instead of just like me like individually is because I'm a black woman with white passing privilege and that's something like I acknowledge. So I felt like it was really important to have like a panel that was like representative in our community. And then just looking over everything that has happened I mean, especially these last weeks, um, post-playing career, I've actually always been pretty vocal and opinionated on social media, and I've lost thousands and thousands of followers, but kind of like piggying back on what Kelsey said, um, you know, if you're going to cheer, you know, for Black athletes on the field, then you got to support them off the field. And while it's forced a lot of um, uncomfortable but necessary conversations, um, while like I'm still really like heavy hearted. Um, I'm like optimistic that hopefully this can be like the catalyst to spark like real necessary change, whether that's in softball, in my school community, just everywhere. And to pretty much echo everybody, um, this is honestly the first time that I've been open to talking about this in much like Tori, you know, we visually being an athlete, our focus was competing. And I realized being an Olympian, the young ladies who gravitated towards me to sign their autographs were young black girls. And so I embraced that role and never publicly have spoken up on just being a black girl in this sport. Um, but obviously the last week has been super heavy and I feel like I was called to, you know, put something out there because definitely in my post playing career, um, it's something when we leave our home every single day, we are racially profiled. And, um, you know, yes, in the softball community, we, we need to start there and, and start to um, 
open up eyes, but I just, as an American, um, being an Olympian, wearing USA across your chest, we celebrate differences here, but are we really doing that? And I, I, I'm almost ashamed and not proud. And I felt like this is, you know, something that I've witnessed in my lifetime. Um, and obviously hearing stories from my parents, like things haven't changed. And, you know, it's finally feels like we have some movement and, and people are open to hear. And definitely a lot of white teammates have reached out and um, just not realizing that this is an issue in an everyday life for uh, African-American. You touched on something, which is that while this is a, a global movement and a global issue, it's very particular in the States, especially now, but also for a long time. So when you look at your experiences with Team USA, this group has had different timelines with that experience. Natasha, you were a face of USA softball for years. Kelsey, you are now going to the Tokyo Olympics. Raven, you've represented your country before. What is it like wearing the red, white, and blue amidst all of this? Natasha, you sort of answered already, but if you have anything to add, and then, of course, Kelsey and Raven as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like it's a sham. Like, it's we're not really representing um, what we say America is. And I think that's the part that hurts the most. We are a country who is supposed to celebrate freedom and justices. And, you know, obviously what we're saying, that's not the case. And so I feel like, you know, change can't happen until we use our voices. And I think that's, you know, obviously what we're doing and, and what we've been doing. Let's pause the interview really quick. Kelsey is about to respond with her insight as somebody currently on the Olympic team going to Tokyo. Unfortunately, we had some audio issues that made it difficult to hear her, but I still think it's important to hear her voice. So I'll play her response now. Then after I'll recap as close to verbatim as possible what she said to make sure you don't miss anything. All right, so here it is. I was going to the like I honestly would have a very hard time wearing only because it's not what we say it is. At least for clothes, let's just not. That's just not what it is. But we've had some really good talks with the USA and USOPC of how they can incorporate Black Lives Matter movement into what we do. They talked about outlining the American flag with maybe just a brown line, so people like they support Black people and they're going to do this. Yes. Those have been great conversations, but as a whole of what we represent, it's just not there yet. Okay, pausing again. Now, here's what Kelsey said. I do understand what Natasha is saying. If I was going to the Olympics this year, like I honestly would have a very hard time wearing USA across my chest. Only because it's not what we say USA is, at least for people of color. That's just not, that's just not what it is. But we've had some really good talks with USA and USOPC of how they can incorporate the Black Lives Matter movement into what we do. We talked about outlining the American flag with maybe just a brown line. So people are like, they support Black people, they're going to do this. So those have been great conversations, but as a whole, what we represent, it's just not there yet. Now, continuing the panel with Raven's thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Natasha and Kelsey said, um, especially to like when I was on USA, you know, up until 2016. I mean, the things that are currently going on have always gone on. And I almost felt like I was like, not by USA, but just as like, you know, always conditioned to kind of like keep my voice like off um, and like not speak out, especially when I was on USA, because the few times I did, you know, my DMs would be getting like blown up, like people telling me, no, you're just an athlete, like be quiet, you know, like pretty much be quiet. Um, so it was always like sometimes hard, especially, you know, and, you know, you're hearing the national anthem, um, but I'm like, does it represent me? Does it represent my family? You know, my fiance, like, fiance, like, is this really representative of, you know, our country? And it's something I, I struggled with, if I'm being honest. And you've all been vocal recently, like you said, you felt the most empowered maybe than ever before in your lives now to speak and use social media specifically as a platform. What do you feel like are the positives of that? Obviously, anything's better than silence. But also, what's the tough part of that? 
I know that for me, the, what made me even start going on social media and speaking out, to be honest, was the number of people that I have played with or against or like played for my dad, then in some how, like some way felt like I wasn't affected by this. Like my blackness was like discredited because they've known me. Like, you know, you're not experiencing this, right, T? Like I got that. And first off, the like shorten up my name. Like we're just like the homies. Like, hey, like you, this isn't like true to you, right? Was like, whoa, like, again, Gil, like, this is on me that you think that in some way I haven't experienced racism or issues with race my entire playing or coaching career. Um, and so, again, that is what kind of, like, drove me to get on social media um, and really start speaking out. And it is a risk. I'm a head softball coach. In some ways, I'm, like, protected. I, I'm at a historically Black university, and I've always spoken out um, on just the difference in the lives, right? Like my, my girls and being, I went to a, a big 10 school. Now we were big 12 when I went, um, seeing just a different in worlds. Like there's even just like a difference in that. And, but for me, like being a head softball coach, I was very careful about it, but I'm so grateful. My AD gave me a life to speak from my heart. Um, from there, I immediately got on the phone with my players and them a green light to speak from their heart and speak their truth. Um, and a real aha moment for me, if I'm being candid, um, just things with issues of hair. And I've always been aware of how I wear my hair my entire career. Like when I would like get out of weave or braids, I would tell coach, I never even did a transition where like some people come out for a day and then go to practice and like never. And I, my daughter, she graduated today for a promoter from kindergarten. And a couple of days ago, I was taking her braids out and she like, hurry up and put something on my head. Like she didn't want to see her hair. And like, that's on me. Like that's on me that like, because I have, I'm so socialized that like, I, I want people to see like with my hair in a certain kind of style, like she didn't even want to see it. So like, I'll post a bunch of grad, like promotion pictures. Skylar will be out of braids for a little bit here. And, or at least I'm going to be more cognizant of it because I don't want her to have to grow up like me. Like she's way more powerful than me. Like her voice is already so much stronger. It took me years to reach that. And I know that my daughter could be a role changer. And here I am holding her back because of like the racial insecurities that I had growing up, um, you know, being the only one or one of the only ones. Yeah, I think I think the best part about social media is like we're in a time right now where everyone's inside and like you literally can't ignore it, right? You can actually ignore it, but you can't say you didn't see it. So I think that's been the most powerful thing about it is like now no one can say that they didn't know what's going on or what happened because they 100% do. Everyone in the world knows what's going on. Um, I think that me being on social media, it was hard at first. I was getting lots of comments like, you're representing the Olympic team, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, that's more reason for me to speak out. Like, that's exactly like my platform now reaches a lot of people. Like, now that's more reason for me to say something. Actually, the Mexico coach, he kind of made this long comment on my post and was kind of just saying, like, you represent the Olympic team. Like, America is great. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, dude no offense but we're trying to build a border to keep you guys out like what are you talking about like you know what I mean and whole different conversation but at the same time like people are just oblivious to what is happening in the USA or they're choosing to ignore it and that's what bothers me the most it's like you see it and like why is it so why is there a debate about ending racism at the end of the day like why is there a debate about it and I don't get it but I think this has probably been the most powerful movement that we've had because again, nobody's doing anything, so everyone's paying attention. But I think that it's been really good for what needs to happen in this country. And I, I agree. I actually, with what Tori was saying, just a lot of my teammates like thinking that I'm exempt and, oh, you're an Olympian. Like, this is, you just had this great life and um, you're exempt to any of these things that are happening. And that's one of the reasons why I spoke out and said, every day I leave my house, I am racially profiled, like, and that shouldn't be a thing. Um, you know, and I, I, I think just, I've had such a great response on social media, just, and it's mainly been from people not even realizing and, and just being oblivious to like, wow, I didn't even see it that way. I didn't even realize this was a thing. And so I, I just, it feels really nice just to have these positive conversations where it almost makes you feel a little bit hopeful um, that you can actually have these conversations. When it comes to social media and the positives, um, 
I've just been really glad to see like people I wouldn't have expected to reach out. And while it's not the job of, you know, black or brown people to like educate people on racism, like that falls on the individual to educate themselves. But it has been like really awesome to see former teammates of mine, you know, from Tennessee, or even like when I was in Fat Busters, like reach out, people I haven't talked to in years. Um, and then I guess maybe pigging back a little bit on like the downside is what Natasha and Tori said. Um, I've gotten a lot of, well, you have to be exempt from this. You know, I get a lot of the, you don't look black. Like you're not really black. Like we, you're not black. You're, you're, it's okay. Um, you know, and it's just like, no, like I've been pulled over and asked what I do for a living because I have a nice car. Like that is something that literally happened to me like not long ago. Um, so I think just that's been the hard part. And also, and I'll be really candid, it's also been hard to see that, you know, people that are speaking out that have like platforms, but like not specifically saying that like Black Lives Matter because they're seem to be scared of losing followers. I don't know. I don't want to make assumptions. Um, but I think just like saying something that simple and that powerful has the opportunity to like reach people that wouldn't have reached and like start that conversation. So that's why like on at least my accounts, I try to be very vocal and I encourage people like, if you don't agree with me, don't unfollow me because you don't want to keep seeing a bunch of stuff of people that agree with you. Like I never delete people that I don't see eye to eye with because I'm hoping that they at least, you know, see my stuff. And if one thing can spark a change, like that's what I'm like hoping for with the social media platform. Along with social media, a large platform within the softball community is college softball. And you each played at an elite level and it's just really a lifeblood of our community. That's what people see on TV a lot. It's a big piece of it. From your perspective, what does it mean to be a black female student athlete? And I know for some of you too, going a long way from home to a complete change, moving Raven U from Southern California all the way to Tennessee, for example, what's that experience? Well, I'll never forget when I um, first moved here, it was complete culture shock. Like um, I had never experienced um, some of culture shock just been how the things looked to being stared at all of a sudden, which I never really encountered living in Thousand Oaks. It was really interesting to see how a lot of like fans, whether that be softball or football or whatever, season ticket holders, you know, cheer on the athletes. But I would then hear people that like I know say things like, oh yeah, I love them on the field, but I would never let them date my daughter. Um, I mean, I even had an instance, and I won't say what year, but like there was a parent on my college team that actually called my dad. I don't know if he didn't know my dad was black or what, but told him that I was dating someone who dressed like a thug. Um, and like that just shouldn't have ever happened. There is an instance too, the first year after I graduated, where someone that I knew from softball, a fan who had been to a ton of games, my whole four years actually messaged me and told me I was um, ruining my image for posting pictures of black people. And I was sewing thistles and that he was deflated by my lack of morals. And I, by then I was like fed up and I put him on blast and I like screenshotted everything and like put it on my Facebook for everyone to see. Just cause that's like a, that's like a real, thing um, but yeah it was definitely and still is even living in Tennessee now for 10 years something I'm, I don't think I'll ever be completely used to if I'm being honest yeah and I was kind of the same as Raven like obviously I'm from Kansas and then I went to Florida even just driving there like I would go into a restaurant and they would look at me like what are you doing you know and it, like instantly I'm uncomfortable or we're out and I'm with football players and they have dreads and they get stopped because like they have dreads and I'm like what's happening like I was not used to that whatsoever but it's something that I learned quickly that I was going to have to really be aware of my surroundings and taking everything but I was very fortunate to have a coach like coach Walton he literally called me the other day 
and he supported it and he was like I want you to use your voice like now than ever use your voice and his the only advice he gave me was I need to think before I spoke and don't just speak on emotion because it's something I'll probably regret but he was like my job is just to shut up and listen to you and support everything you say and that for me also helped me have my voice I'm like coach Walton someone I respect to that highest is over here telling me use my voice and to do things the right way like I'm like absolutely I'm using my voice so I think I was very blessed to be in a culture where he wants us to have a voice and wants us to voice our opinion and do things like that but again it's just different in the south than it is in Kansas I will say um just even like I'm reading Natasha's post and it's crazy how accustomed I have actually come to racism like things like first class and I go up and they're like this is first class and I'm like I know you know what I mean like I didn't obviously they're not doing that to anyone else but me but it's like one of those things like wow I really am accustomed to what's going on in this world but it's time to stop all of that I went from uh, SoCal to Lincoln Nebraska so um and I mean, when I think about it, like how crazy, but I was 15 and I went to a football game as if I was going to be a wide receiver or something. and was like, I got to come here. And um, I didn't regret it. I remember one of the first friends I met um, was not an athlete and she was from this small town and I was the first, like she was just looking at me in class. And like, I grew up in Corona, so I was used to being the only one, but this was like different. And I was like, well, finally one day, like we talked and um she was just like I, I don't want this to come off wrong like I've just never like see like she wanted to like almost touch me in a way and we it, at first I was like offended and then it was like I she had a good heart um and so I felt like I had to teach her like I had to teach her like or untrain her from things she was trained her whole life and um it's kind of amazing because like with all this going on she wrote on my page and she was like you know that I changed her life and she's now like a pastor who fights against oppression in like all of these cities and it's really cool but one thing that I did find uncomfortable was kind of how they idolized the black man in the body, right, of the athlete. Like, it was this foreign thing. Like, a lot of my friends, um, they were completely obsessed with him. But then what would what I'd find funny is when they graduated and they were out of that Lincoln bubble, that athletic bubble, the fear set in. Like, now the same guy that used to, like, you know, pay all of this money to watch and wait after games to take pictures with, is now like you I can't even count how many of the guys that stay in Lincoln end up arrested where when they were playing it was like this tap on the you know the wrist because like now you know what I mean they weren't there was no fear like you're not a real threat you're just this young guy having fun and in college and now they're arrested right you see them on the front page of the paper um I know that for me when I was out of the bubble um the athletic bubble right uh I remember I had my daughter and I was breastfeeding her her dad had gone in somewhere and uh this lady I seen this lady I distinctly remember looking at her she was with her kids and like let it go we drive we went to a gas station Skylar was like having a fussy day and I stopped at the gas station and like breastfeed her again while he's pumping and the police I get like a police that comes and blocks us from the front and the back and the this lady had followed and reported that um as if I was a threat to my daughter um I don't know if they even had a car seat um, this is what he was saying. Like I needed, I had to show proof of my car seat. Um, I had to, we had to get out our, our IDs. Like he had to go out and talk. Um, he had to go out and talk to the cops and like pretty much convince them that we were like one, her parents and good parents and able-bodied parents. And I was like, I, I mean, I cried. I was infuriated where her dad was like, Corey, like this happens to me all the time. Like he was upset that I was upset. And like, it, it turned into an argument with me and him. And I'm like, this is not right. Like I was infuriated. And uh, the, at the end of the day, what also ended up getting us out was, I, you know, to be honest, like I met really good people that were not black out there. And this lady that knew me and knew my heart and never looked at me like that way kind of handled all of this. But I, that, I was like literally breastfeeding my daughter and considered a threat and a threat to my own kid. And I loved Lincoln. And that wasn't my experience with everything in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, but that just isn't something that was like my norm coming from SoCal, right? And getting followed. You know, it, it, it was a lot. And I think that our athletic bubble, again, protected us from a lot of the racism that lived in and around Nebraska. And I grew up in Irvine, went to college in LA, so it wasn't too far of a landscape change. Um, so I always grew up 
being one of the few on the softball team, um, if not the only um, black girl on the team. So going to UCLA, I instantly gravitated towards Tria Flowers, Tria Mims at the time, um, who was my best friend. And so it's kind of like you just gravitate and you find your pockets. Um, my best friends were black girls on the basketball team. And so you just kind of instantly find your community. Um, being a black student athlete, um, I was so thankful of having Coach Enquist, Sue Enquist, who treated all her players the same and was one of the people who told me, Natasha, when, you know, I'm just quiet, shy. One of these days, you know, you're going to have to use your voice and like would challenge me, challenge me. And um, my favorite story about her, which she would just film me, which kind of sounds kind of awkward and weird, but she'd make me come to her office. She'd film me and just make me speak about my day. But she was like, you're going to have to use your voice. And yes, I want you to be vocal on the field. You're our shortstop. You're, you're going to lead our infield. But once you leave this in university, you're going to have to use your voice. And it's just so funny. We kind of had this little moment this past week when I posted that post and she's like, this is what we were talking about. And I, I actually reached out to her and just thank you because I had to use my voice and not had to, I, I wanted to. And, you know, I'm just so thankful to be in an environment where I was encouraged, supported, um, always recognized that I was one of the few and um, never really felt like I experienced like a true racism, like living in a Tennessee or, um, you know, LA is a pretty diverse place, but definitely as a student athlete, um, I think as a black athlete in a, a predominantly white sport, you just have to be really damn good, you know? And, um, you know, sometimes you're not the one that's celebrated or, or whatnot, but you've got to go that extra mile. You've got to be that damn good, you know? And that's something. And I think more than anything, like if, any of the bad experiences, I think my parents experienced most of the racism dealing with other parents or, and they sheltered me from a lot of things. I'm really thankful for them. Um, but, you know, I just, those things didn't trickle down, you know? And so I think that would pretty much be my college experience. And careers start in our youth. And you, you mentioned that a little bit, Natasha, Tori, earlier, you talked about it. I mean, Growing up in SoCal, I can't count the amount of times I played against Corona Angels, you know, just like a huge piece of the softball community and the travel ball community growing up was what your family built. So when you guys think about growing up in softball, how do you feel like representation was like in travel ball and, and as you grew in your careers? I, I know that for, for me, obviously, it's a little bit different because we were like, I mean, essentially during our time, the Blacks family we were the like minority team you know I think that's another thing if I'm thinking about things that have kind of been driving me a little crazy is uh there was times when we'd be playing and I would see it turn from it being this competitive battle with the Corona Angels um especially when we played in different regions and it was like this personal thing with my dad and as soon as it was like a disagreement he was a boy and that boy term it's so derogatory, but what I'm more disappointed in now that I think about it is like the number of adults who knew at that time and were aware that this has now like crossed the line that was not acceptable. Um, and my dad and, you know, and, and it pains me, like I'm writing a piece right now, just like of the black man and the experience. My dad isn't, it's not that he's numb and he, he was writing something um, that he hasn't like posted, but like just that he's not numb to this stuff he's just not surprised. And like, that bothers me. Like it bought, like, I remember we would be infuriated when we'd hear it. That was like half the battles is that, um, and, and one, my dad is like the, the big black, like loud guy, you know, and I don't know, it, it seemed like it's, it got very personal a lot of the time. Um, and when people like, you know, and, and it, it's okay, it was almost accepted. And I, I don't know, I've all, I really, really struggled with that, but I guess I didn't even real, really realize it until I got to college and would like come back. And then, you know, I'm walking the stands and people don't hear me or know me. Like people don't know always immediately that that's my dad, even as a college coach in the racial undertone of the statements they make um, is really, really disheartening. And I, again, a lot of it is just a lack of awareness, but a lot of it, uh, the fact that they're using his race as a weapon once the game kind of gets out of hand or they're losing, you are kind of aware because you know to use it as a weapon. Um, and so I really struggled with that. And I, I know my dad, I was lucky because we were kind of surrounded by minorities, but there were times where I didn't play for my dad. 
um, where, you know, I would take a break and just my experience, like starting, I think about racial things I endured starting in like 10 and under, eight and under, I went to a swim party. And I mean, I, everybody's aware, like your braids or extensions, right? Like, and these, uh, there was three white girls on my team come to practice. One, like a, a braid of mine had like fallen out. And they're like, hey, you're, here's your hair. And thought it was just like this hilarious joke. Um, and that was like at eight or nine. And I had to like suppress it. Like, I didn't know at the time why I didn't want to snap. But then like, I would have looked like this angry black girl who, if I would have like responded or gave that life. And that was like as early as eight, nine years old. And I know that something we talk about, like even position wise, like when I'm out recruiting and it is that like you see a black kid and it's like, you can't see it for what it is. It's like, oh man, I can't wait to get her and change her position. Or like, you know, like you, you're looking to change something about them or form or make them something that they're not, like not what they're giving you. Like they're giving you their position. They're giving you their skill set. And it's like recruiting them to change them. And again, I don't know that that's always intentional. So I don't want it to come off that way, but I feel like it's worth the conversation. Like, you know, like understand the racial undertone, um, even when you're out recruiting and, and the things that you're saying. Travel ball, gosh, I mean, seems like a very long time ago. Um, but exactly, kind of the same experience. I, I feel like in travel ball, um, again, I was one of the few or the only. And whether I was the only one on my team, I just tend to gravitate towards other black girls and those were my best friends, you know? Um, but growing up, I mean, I, I, I think, again, I, I really <laughs> cannot thank my parents enough um, because now in hindsight, hearing stories and, and trying to change teams, be on this team and the chatter and, you know, the, the discouragement like, oh, well, maybe if you, if your daughter does go to UCLA, maybe, or if she does pick this school, um, you know, it's, an affirmative action right you know it's not necessarily because your talent or because you're good enough and they definitely experienced that and playing on different teams um you know i was a shortstop wanted to play shortstop and it's like this stereotype thing where you put the black girls in the outfield because they're fast you know and so it's just it's it's a lot of things that you you deal with but you just kind of suppress you you don't really face them in the eye you never really it took, I mean, literally these last two weeks, I have gone back and tried to just play what my childhood was like. Um, you know, did I experience racism? Because sometimes you do become numb to it because again, my parents raised me, hey, Natasha, when you leave this house, people may judge you and you may be treated differently. And, um, and you just start to accept that and you just swallow it and you just keep moving and you just keep, you keep it pushing, you know, and you don't want to be a complainer or, you know, like my parents already warned me about this. Like I'm good, you know, I'm already got the armor, I'm good to go. Um, but again, like if I bring another, if I bring a baby in this world or, you know, I'm thinking of Skylar or, you know, just, I don't want to raise that next generation of kids, uh, kids of color, black kids. If you leave this house, people might judge you differently. And that's just something that um, I hope that as we move forward, that's something that I would love to change. Looking at travel ball, especially because Jenna, you and I, you, you play at Camarillo, right? Well, from Camarillo, ended up playing at Westlake for high school. Okay. But same idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, especially where, you know, we're from in Thousand Oaks. I mean, I mean, I was sometimes my friend's only Black friend. I mean, there were no Black people um, where we're from. So playing, you know, at TOGSA, you know, our little rec league. I mean, I truly am looking back and I don't think there was any black people or coaches except my dad and me. So a lot of like the microaggressions, especially that was like directed at my dad, like, why is he so angry? Like, why is he so loud? Um, stuff like that. Like I didn't even really notice until Natasha just said, I've been kind of like going back and like playing things through my head. Like, when I was in travel ball um, and I'm like, gosh, and building off what Tori said, you know, I have played um, against Marty Tyson so many times, by the way, I love him. Me and him would talk 24 seven. I literally adored him. Um, I would literally go to the Palm Springs tournaments after I graduated college just to see him. But like looking at the undertones, I mean, she's hundred percent right. Like I look back and, 
another predominantly like black team, like Lakewood ladies, I think like the things parents and kids would say. And at the time, like, I didn't think anything of it. And now I look back and I'm like, almost just like ashamed, like of myself for not like, you know, yeah, I was young, but like, gosh, why didn't I say anything? You know, like, oh my gosh, why are they, you know, climbing on like the cages, yelling so loud, you know, like animals, like that was, that's literally been said in the dugout before. And I look back and I'm just like, like I'm sickened when I think of it. Um, but in terms of representation, like, no, there isn't a lot in softball or baseball. That's something my fiance, for those of you who don't know, he plays with the Detroit Tigers and that's something him and a lot of like the black uh, pro athletes right now in baseball, like they're trying to up representation in that. Um, I think it's needed. Um, you know, it's, I almost like have forgotten so much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's like room for growth and everything and a good learning moment. And just for people to just like, really like look at themselves and yeah, just think like, what can we do to get more representation in our sport? And then actually not try to change them as I think it was Natasha said, I mean, I was automatically put in the outfield and I'll be, I'm awful in the outfield. I'm literally terrible, but, but because I was fast, they're like, put her in the outfield, put her in the outfield. And then when our third baseman got kicked off the team, you know, my sophomore year, they put me in the infield and found my natural position at third base. But you know, it's like little things like that. It's like, Oh, put all the black girls in the outfield. Um, yeah. Just like little things like that that don't seem like a big deal, but they are. And you all coach in some fashion now. Tori, obviously the head coach at Howard. Yeah. But Natasha, you have your foundation. Raven, I know you've given lessons for a long time. Um, so why don't we go ahead and go in that order in terms of what role does the coach play in helping enact change? I'm going to tell you something I'm like battling right now. So if you don't know my journey, like I, um, I had my daughter and like wanted to get into college coaching. So I blew up everybody and Bethune Cookman gave me my first shot and, um, I loved it. I like, I mean, you're Corona, California, <laughs> Lincoln, Nebraska. And I remember I go to Bethune and it was just a whole new world. The girls were like come to the calf on the first Friday. And it was like the best party Lincoln could have ever put together it was just their like Friday lunch. And just, just the spirit uh, in being around and coaching girls that look like you and it being okay to go out. And in many ways, like I, I, it's my job to look for some of the best minorities. Um, and that's not everybody's first. And not to come be my pinch runner or my outfielder, to come be my star. So I was like thriving. Um, and then I got three big offers after that first year and everyone, I, I moved a couple places and that was the hardest move because I wasn't necessarily that I like wanted to leave, but I felt I had to leave. Like I had a duty to leave um, because I had to prove that I could do this on another level. And I, and then that way I'm not at a historically black school because I had to be, but because I wanted to be. So I left on a mission and I wanted to dominate like all, you know, and show that I could win. And um, I, I think that it, for me, it was important to have my representation at those places. One, because I wanted those girls to look on TV and see, forget a center fielder or a pinch runner or a slapper that looked like them, but a coach. So like when we made it to regionals at UCLA, when I was at Cal State Fullerton, it mattered, man. I'm going to tell you, I walked extra slow on my timeouts to the mound because I wanted a little black pitcher somewhere to see me. I wanted her to know that she can go to college and she can be a pitching coach. Like you, it, like a black pitching coach, one, because we're not even really ever seen in that, a lot in that position. And so I took it really personal and I felt like I had to stay at a high, like higher levels, you know, so that I was seen. And I remember when I left Maryland, I talked to Tyra Perry a lot and I almost wanted this. Okay. Is it okay for me? Right. Cause I wanted to go back to Howard and I, I wanted, uh, I wanted to go back to historically black school and be able to give them the same information and the same power that these other kids get at other universities. And I'm like, but is there enough of us spread out for it to be okay for me to go back? And um, because it's needed, it's needed for things that we experience in college, for them to be able to have a coach that has been through the same things, like it's important. And so I, I, I went back to Howard um, 
I went back to an HBCU and obviously I'm at Howard and it is amazing. Um, one, the support that I got from everybody at every level and then, uh, and, and I want to say that the people in our profession that are not black have reached out to me and like just learning our story and learning the tradition of historically black schools. And um, for me, it is so important that one, I show that these little black girls can play good softball. And so it's like a mission for me to, it, 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 I have to show that we can be competitive. And I feel like I have a duty to fulfill because there's even a stigma, right? With historically black schools. I mean, we're all guilty of it. Everybody on this call, when you play them, you got to run roll up. Like you got to, it's a, it's a stat, you know, you, you're there to, and that's okay. Like that's the reality though. And so for me, it is so empowering. Like I want to build this team to make it okay to be like, you know, when you see a bunch of minorities, you're not thinking the worst or it's going to be bad softball. They can play good softball. So my role as a coach in this has been literally all over, which is like almost stressful. Like I, I, I and right now I feel like it's my duty now to do what I just told you. Um, but I always feel like it's important for me to just be represented and make sure that these athletes get represented. So even if I don't want them, you know, if I see some minority athletes, I always go out of my way to make contact with them, even if I don't got room for them and let them know I see them and I appreciate them. And if I can get them somewhere else, I will. And sometimes it's dangerous because sometimes it's the competition, but I need to see them as much as they need to see me. So again, my role is always ever changing. Skylar wants some um, camera time apparently guys. So here it is. <laughs> Hi Skylar. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Gosh. Uh, and, and my role in this whole coaching world, I guess now it's, it's been through my foundation and, you know, I think we can all attest to this game giving us so much. It's, it's given, it's literally has built me. Um, it's the core of me softball. Um, and so, you know, my role is I want young little black girls, Hispanic girls to know that this game is for them. Um, they don't necessarily gravitate towards the game because they don't think that's a, it's a game for them or the game that, would suit them. And so that's been my role is like, you can play this game. Um, I want to give them that access. I want to give them that opportunity to fall in love with this game and potentially send them off to um, play for Tory and, and go to UCLA and go wherever. And I want them to know that they can excel in this sport and that they can become great women of character. And um, I think, I, I don't know, this game has just given us so much. And so that's just kind of in my role is just kind of turning that around and, and providing that and showing them that this could be a great avenue for you and a great avenue for um, them to achieve all of the things that they want to achieve. I obviously haven't coached at the collegiate level, but, you know, I did lessons in Knoxville for about four or five years, doing here in Nashville. Um, and I think similar to what Natasha said, it's just like giving back because it has given me so much. I mean, I wouldn't be you know, a fraction of the person I am without this game. You know, I do a lot of work with India Childs through Slapper Nation, which I think is phenomenal, you know, having like a black owned and ran company. And when I, you know, when we do those camps, whenever there is one or two black girls, you know, at that camp, like I make it my mission, like they have my number, they, you know, I, they, I follow them on Instagram and like I am there as like, someone to ask for advice, whether that be like recruiting, you know, school, whatever. And then now in my personal life, um, you know, I teach at a Title I school where, you know, 90% of my kids are, you know, kids of color. And I am the associate athletic director. And um, I've actually have started to create like clubs like for softball and baseball because, you know, all our kids, you know, they haven't been experienced or exposed to this sport. Um, so just, you know, letting them know that this sport exists, like, and just getting it out there. Because I also think it's just like a lack of access as well. So just letting them know it's there. So that's kind of been my, my focus, you know, as an associate AD. One thing I wanted to throw in, and it's something I actively do. And so I know a lot of college coaches are like, what can we do? is I know that we use a lot of our like downtime to make money or profit for our managers and stuff, right? To make money in camps. But I think giving them like a large platform to come and like give, like let it be your most discounted camp of your like year, right? Like five to $10, like, yeah, it's going to be draining, but it's going to be worth it because 
again, there, I, I think about even my position, I am a minority, put this in perspective, I am a minority coach in a historically black conference. Like there is only one other African-American woman. And I want to say one other African-American male at a historically black university. So we can do a lot, right? Like we look at, we're all, and I think one thing that we all said I, that is so cool is that when we see a minority girl, we let them know we see them. And, you know, and sometimes our push is, is extra, but getting all of the coaches involved on that, that, um, you know, giving them that like the access is the key. And a lot of that has to do with just financially, right? It's easy to, if I'm telling somebody I'm doing a $10 camp, that's a lot more feasible than, Hey, 250 and you get to hang with the girls and ask questions like that's just not going to happen for a lot of these kids. It's a great point. Visibility is powerful outside of the coaching world, which you've all dipped your toe in and, and still have it in uh, in different ways, which is so interesting for this conversation. But beyond that, just as a softball community as a whole, what can we do to be more inclusive and especially what can allies do that's actually productive? For me, I said those camps, um, I think RBI does an amazing job, but even just giving even other access, right? Like let them go to these big campuses and see the same thing, these kids that can afford to fly out and trying to create something that way. However, you could do it within your athletic department, um, within your budget. Um, I know that one, when you see athletes, right, uh, when you go out recruiting and that's conversations I have that I don't think it's a bad thing. There's not a lot of them to... To, to give feedback, right? When you see a predominantly minority team or minority athletes, I think it's just putting those kinds of teams in, in better positions. Because a lot of times those teams that have a lot of minorities are playing in these cities that you don't want to leave the main field to go and see. I do, because I'm at Howard. I couldn't prior, right? I had to stay at those main fields. So I think even tournament directors kind of being aware, right, of those kinds of things and um, I, I, I know it's something that we got to work on, but one, I think just having the conversations um, is key and not tiptoeing around it. Um, I think that I've, I've talked about it more as an adult and I was lucky because I had Rhonda. Um, so little things like our, our hair, and I, I said this on another call, that like on picture day, like, hey, bro, you can't give me a 24-hour notice. That's it's not going to work. And it's not me being disrespectful or anything, like, but it's going to, you're looking at about a six-hour day for me to get my hair done. Like, I got to know. That's, and my coach was okay with it. Like Rhonda Ravel, Diane Miller, Lori Sipple, we kind of were having these conversations. So one thing I've encouraged my college coach friends and um, travel ball coaches is like, just because the conversation makes you uncomfortable, doesn't mean it doesn't need to be had. And I think that more conversations just have to happen. I think that that's happening right now. Um, understanding and learning and understanding the communication styles of everybody. And I know that's so vague, but there's just certain things that come up in this sport that I'm like, you don't know how people are raised. You don't know. Like, I know for me, when I got to Nebraska, I didn't cry. I didn't cry. Marty didn't let me cry. It wasn't like I, it, it meant less to me. It wasn't that I had an attitude. I literally was just not a thing. Like, we didn't cry. I couldn't cry over a result I hadn't practiced for. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I remember when I first got there, it was like, is she mad? Does she care? Um, we're all just bred differently and grown up differently. So I think just being aware of that and having those conversations is something that I think is super key right now. Um, opening up softball to make it accessible to everybody and affordable. Um, and not all the time, but you can do a camp like once a year, twice a year that that can happen. I would say um, definitely have all-inclusive experiences for all. And that starts at grassroots, um, making it affordable, giving access to whomever. And, you know, sometimes a lot of people are looking for a profit. And sometimes if we're really about growing our sport, we need to make this something that's accessible to all and everyone. Um, I think even what I'm starting to admire about some of my close friends who are college coaches um, who are white and um, have invited me to come and talk to their team because, you know, they're like, this doesn't actually affect me. So I don't know if I should be the one to speak about this. So keeping the conversation going, um, I just think that's huge. Um, and if, you know, you're leading a team, um, get the people in there to help lead the conversation, you know, and I think it's up to a coach to initiate that conversation. So keeping the conversations going for sure, because um, everybody's experience with 
this race thing is is completely different. And I think it's it's great for everybody to hear, continuing to hear these things because that's how we change behavior. Is if we actually hear, okay, I didn't realize that might be considered a, a racist comment or a racist act. Let me hear this so I can be completely on the opposite spectrum. And I think it's just opening eyes, opening ears, continuing to have the conversation for sure. Echoing what both of you said, I mean, just having those uncomfortable conversations because any conversation like worth having at this point when it comes to race, like is going to be a little bit uncomfortable and that's okay. I guess I'll touch more on the point of like allyship um, that you were talking about. So like in terms of like being like an ally, I think like the biggest thing is just like listening to understand and not listening to respond. So there's like the thing that's really been, I guess, that makes, I don't know if anxious is the right word, but a lot of the, the things I've been seeing, whether that be like on the news or social media, is people are going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And it's like, listen, like if there's a whole community where 99% of this community is voicing an opinion, like it might do well to just listen and it's okay to make mistakes and be uncomfortable along the way. That's the only way for growth. I mean, I have grown in my own, you know, self as a person just by listening. Like, you know, just because I'm black doesn't mean I grew up knowing all the answers. Like I said, my perspective is that of white passing privilege, especially from where I grew up. So, you know, me just listening and educating myself too. Um, and also a credit to, you know, my mom and my dad, you know, for doing that as well along the way. I think that's like a really powerful thing for allyship, just listening to understand and then amplifying the voices of those marginalized. So, you know, bring in Natasha Watley to talk to your team. That is amazing. You know, we don't need, you know, people who haven't lived that experience necessarily talking about it. You can have those conversations, but it is so much more powerful to bring in someone that's one, recognizable, and then two, that has lived that. Like that has the ability to change and shape like so many hearts and minds. And then I would say the thing that would be the strongest for allyship, which is also probably the most uncomfortable, is calling out bad behavior. and when people say bad things. I mean, I'll be honest, my mom is white, my dad is black. I can't tell you since, you know, I've probably been 16 years old, how many times I've had to call out people in my own family. Oh, and, and it causes stuff. I mean, there's people that, you know, in my family that we don't, we don't talk to anymore because of it. But like having those conversations without being accusing and, you know, giving them like the, not necessarily giving them the resources because that's not, again, the job of, you know, black people or brown people or whatever. But I think just like calling out that bad behavior, I think I'll speak for myself, not for everyone, but like we I've been in the room where someone says something and you know, and I'm like, oh my God, did they really just say that? But you know, when I was young, like I didn't say anything. But like now as a 29 year old, like that doesn't happen. So I think like for like being an ally, um, calling out that behavior. And then in turn making that into like, I guess correlating that with softball, I mean, amplify the voices of the black people in this community. You know, don't worry so much about making the profit. I can't tell you how many lessons I do for free for kids um, because like, I'm not doing this for money. Like I want them to, you know, get to where they need to go. So yeah. <laughs> and I can't express enough how much I appreciate all of your perspectives and everything that you guys have shared. And I know we've touched on a lot of things. There's still a million more things we could have touched on. But from our conversation today, let's kind of go around and final thoughts, anything you want to say that you feel is compelling that you want to share? I mean, I feel like we touched them all. Um, but I mean, obviously, we can, can talk about this like all day long. And I think more than anything, I, I think. Um, we can't say it enough. It's just continuing to have these open conversations and having them openly, inviting people, um, and just sharing your experiences with this. And I think it's just helpful. It's been obviously, it's been helpful and therapeutic for even myself having them um, and, and knowing that I'm not alone in this and that, you know, 
we all have experienced our own issues with this. So I, I, I can't echo enough, um, just continuing to have the conversations and um, recognizing that everybody's experiences are different with this. Again, we, we touched on so much, but the thing, again, I'll just hammer in one last time is just like, listen to understand and then look at ways to diversify like your daily life. That's something I've even had to do from, you know, the influencers I follow on Instagram to, um, you know, the musical artists I listen to, to the books I'm reading. I think it's also important to note that like you can't possibly learn uh, you know, 400 years of oppression in a week, like learning about this is going to, you know, take time. So finding those resources, reading those books, if you have Netflix, watch 13. I mean, that will open up everything into, you know, just the life black people live every single day, um, reading books. And again, just who, again, who you follow, um, your friend group, just things like that. So listen to understand and just diversify your everyday life is probably the thing I would want people to take away. For me, what I want people to take away is if you know history, we've been at these positions before, right? Where we're at a crossroads and major changes come from them, right? You think about um, when they abolished slavery, they had to reform it, right? And that's because the Civil War happened. And, you know, and then these conversations are necessary for the, for one, our future generation. And I am so extremely excited for our future. Cause if you look at people who are peacefully protesting, it's so diverse. Um, and I think it speaks to our future. And I am excited about that, that even with us being so flawed and not the best communicators, we are somehow creating a youth that is way more powerful than us and understands it and they get it. Um, for where we are right now, um, as they've all said, is be okay with asking questions. Um, and I think that for us as the African-American um, people in this community is be okay with receiving them. Um, and I know that for me, I have to take, like, I, I can't take it personally, but I, I do feel like it's my duty because some of this stuff they're not going to be able to find in a movie, like how to treat us in this sport. Um, that's not going to be found in a movie. They're going to have to call us and we have to be a safe space for them to ask those questions. Um, so just make sure that your energy is one of change um, and not for chaos, um, because I think that we need that. And I know that for me, I've really been trying to be of peace. I've really been trying to put out educated posts, but also letting them know I have a zero tolerance for racism at the same time. So like flirting with that line, I'm here for it, but I'm not here for it. It's two different things. I'm here for questions. I'm not here to argue racism and whether it's real or not. Um, so I've been trying to be very strategic with that. Um, but again, I think I, I invite everybody to just accept where we, where we are right now and let's figure out a way out of this thing together. Accept that we are here and why we are here. And that is accepting that racism is a thing. Um, and for the people in our softball community, we have fought and, and fought for so much, right? We wanted to get on TV. I seen everybody jump in on that fight. Everybody, right? I was at a school that wasn't going to get on TV. I was at Bethune fighting for people to get on TV. I wasn't about to get my midweeks on TV. But at the end of the day, we've all joined in on those fights for each other. And I think right now we are in a fight to for, for something so much deeper. Um, and so I'm inviting everybody to join in on this with us. Um, and I'm super excited about it. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for your time, your insight, your willingness to share. I mean, this is so much bigger than softball, but that softball community is something that we're all a part of. So this conversation, I think, I hope will help all of us as we move forward as a community and as a society. So thank you again. I know I've talked to a couple of you separately and you're exhausted. Uh, understandably, right? And so to be able to keep your foot on the gas for this conversation and everything else you're doing, I see you and I appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you, Jenna. Jenna, appreciate it. I appreciate it. Again, these ladies are ambassadors to our game who use their voices in our community and I'm grateful to have had them on this round table. Transitioning to the double play tip of the week. Remember, this tip helps us think about the physical and mental side of the game. This week's tip is about calling for the ball defensively. So physically, obviously you have to use your voice, you know, from your gut, you have to be loud, you can't be timid. People yell ball, 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 or my, my, mine. It doesn't really matter. At Stanford, we said mine because it felt and sounded a bit clearer, but either way, repeating it over and over is what helps get the message across. 
Also, you can wave your arms in the air as another nonverbal cue that you're calling other people off. It's kind of like a fair catch in football. And you only can do this if you have the time to get under it. If you're in a full sprint or you're diving or something, that's less realistic, but it's a good default to fall back on. So you take charge with your voice and your presence. And you also have to listen. You, want, you have to do that to get out of the way to avoid a collision or even listen to see if they've conceded to you to finish the play, right? Mentally, it's not just about who calls it first. It's also about who is the priority. And there's preparation that comes with that before the play. So the general rules of priority, basically the concept is pay attention to who has the better angle and visibility. So for example, for anything hit in between infielders and outfielders, the outfield takes priority over the infield. They have a better angle and better visibility running forward versus an infielder running backwards. Within the outfield, center fielders take priority over left field and right field. They cover the most ground. They typically have a lot of speed and good judgment, which is why they're there in the first place as the leader in the grass. They can see more. Within the infield, middle infielders take priority over the corners. Again, the angle is typically better. Like they play deeper on the dirt and have better visibility of the field and are in a position to have more range to actually get there to the ball. Between the corners and the battery, meaning the pitchers and the catchers, for anything popped up in the shallow dirt, fair or foul territory, corners take priority over pitchers and catchers as much as possible. Again, same concept, better angle and a better read. And if you're a catcher, you know how tough it is to be able to see a ball popped up right above you or behind you or in your peripheral vision. You'll thank your corners. And then even if you break that down further, even between the two corners, third base takes priority over first base. Once again, better angle. It's the same thing, especially towards first base. Let's say the ball does drop on the ground accidentally, for example. Attempting to get the runner at first base is easier from third base to make that throw because your momentum is already going more in that direction versus a first baseman having to turn around and make a throw. And the same thing concept might apply in the middle infield with the shortstop taking over the second baseman. So if the priority person calls it, even if somebody else called it first, the priority generally takes over to make the play. Now, if the person who usually has priority doesn't have time to get to the ball, like they just can't get there, then the person who can make the play, of course, takes charge. It's about reading that live as the play is happening. And you get better at that with time and practice. So again, same concept for every scenario. Being smart about who has the best view and chance of making the play. And you also get a sense of your range and the range of your teammates in practice. So that knowledge will also help come game time. That's the physical and mental side of calling the ball defensively. Use your voice, listen, and understand the priorities. That's the double play tip of the week. You've been listening to Believe in Softball, available everywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and Believe.com. Subscribe, rate, and review, and share. Hit me up on Twitter at JennaBacera01 and Instagram at JennaBacera. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.